I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Simon N. Whitney, MD, JD, author of From Oversight to Overkill, Inside the Broken System that Blocks Medical Breakthroughs and How We Can Fix It. Faced with horrors such as as the notorious Tuskegee syphilis study, another experiment that injected patients with live cancer cells, and a third that infected institutionalized children with hepatitis, one might expect only praise for a regulatory system intended to promote safe and ethical medical research. Simon N. Whitney is part of a chorus of critics who argue that this regulatory regime needlessly burdens researchers and stifles the advance of life-saving medical treatments. He sees regulation as an essential part of modern life, but maintains that regulations need to reflect real-world research if they are to serve their mission. He presents vivid case studies of how vital breakthroughs for treating heart disease, premature births, and kidney stones have been inexcusably delayed, forcing doctors and patients to settle for less effective treatments. He's a graduate of NYU Medical School, Stanford Law School, and was previously on the faculty at Baylor College of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Whitney. Nice to have you on today. Nice to be with you. I'm assuming, and this is just an assumption, and maybe I am wrong, but your book, From Oversight to Overkill, reflects, uh, I guess, a a systematic problem in the the medical system that is getting worse, not better, that these regulations are, as I said in in, in this intro, impeding a lot of medical research, which is not a good thing for us, for the general public. Your intro, your intro was a very good summary of, of the book's argument. Basically, it's important to protect people from being abused in research, but that protection should not extend so far that research can't move forward and we can't make progress against these diseases that are still everyday killers. That's what the system keeps us from doing, and that's what we need to change. So specifically, what is happening? I mean, give us give us an oversight for the over, to overkill. Um, what's happening in specific uh, medical facilities around the country? I, I mentioned a couple of things that we're missing out on. We're not getting breakthroughs in the, what did you say, premature birth, treating heart disease. Um, do we have ex- specific examples of that in, let's say, the big medical centers across the country? Every medical center across the country that does research has an IRB system. That's the system we're talking about. And it had a good purpose, which was to prevent future syphilis experiments in which the U.S. government doctors observed black men in Alabama who had syphilis, who were not treated, many of whom died. That was a a real stain on American medicine and American government. And it should never be repeated. This system has the noble goal of preventing that from happening But instead of being simply a system of oversight, it's now a system of overkill in which promising research is slowed, damaged, sometimes blocked entirely so it can't be undertaken. You asked for examples. Yeah, there are are millions of them. And uh, I guess I'd rather start with with a funny one than a frustrating one or a sad one. The funny one is uh, the University of Colorado uh, IRB, which felt that subjects in the experiment uh, testing skin-to-skin transfer of germs could get AIDS. This was years after we discovered 
HIV is never spread through skin-to-skin contact. It also warned that people could get smallpox. Smallpox was declared extinct by the WHO in 1979, but that's not going to happen. These are silly objections, and eventually the board withdrew their objection, but it cost the researcher time. It cost them money because grants don't last forever. And each time you slow science by one click, means down the road, a cure or a treatment will be delayed and somebody who needed that is not going to get it. But Dr. Whitney, what's what's the reasoning behind this? Why are they doing that? I mean, you just gave this kind of silly, not a silly example, but it does impede the research and it costs money and, 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 and all of that. So why are we are doing that or in, I mean, is it? And I guess the second part of this is: Are we just doing it here in this country? Well, uh, let's start with this country. Um, we are doing it because this is a hidden system. If people could see what it was doing, they would be up in arms. Um, but there are two systems for approving research in the U.S. nowadays: one's the FDA, and one is this system, which is overseen by a much smaller federal agency called the OHRP. FDA has thousands of employees, a budget in the billions, and on the front pages, more days than not. This tiny system we're talking about here has, a, has 26 employees and a budget in the millions, barely, but its impact is far out of proportion to its size because it can affect any government-funded research of any kind, no matter how, how uh, benign, no matter how harmless. And once you start looking for harms, you find them. Uh, I don't know where the smallpox and HIV harms came from, but somebody could imagine them, and that made them real enough to try to confront in a bureaucratic, lumbering way to make sure they had checked every box. It, 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 it doesn't make sense, and that's because the federal oversight of it also doesn't make sense. And I have a sister and a brother-in-law who devoted their lives to federal service, so I have to say right up front, that there are terrific people serving our federal government, uh, but this agency is not one example, and the sooner it's reformed, uh, the better off we will all be. You asked I mean, about other countries. Yeah. We've exported this system. Out. Well, the U.S. is by far the most generous funder of medical research in the world. It, Post-World War II, we made a commitment to using the power of the government to fund research that would save lives. And that research often is done in conjunction with scientists abroad. And U.S. law says they have to have a system just like ours. So just as we've exported the funding, which the scientists abroad appreciate, we've exported this system, which they are less wild about. It's, it's a very widespread problem. Well, and, and your book, how do you think that's, is that going to, is, have, what kind of an impact do you think that's going to have on this kind of of, uh, of research? It's, it's very hard to measure uh, because if you, talk, if, you, if you talk with a scientist about this um, and they say, well, my research, I, I couldn't look into a particular kind of treatment because um, my IRB review thought it was too risky for the subjects. Uh, you might say, what was too risky? Well, they have a very broad idea of risk. And so 
Well, let, let's, for instance, think of an example of a lumbar puncture or spinal tap, right? Yep. This has not got a good reputation among the general public. <laughs> so if you said to the average person, would you help scientific research that involves getting a spinal tap or a lumbar puncture? A lot of people would say no. But people who have had a lumbar puncture done by a well-trained doctor in the right circumstances say, you know, it wasn't really that bad. And a subject who, whose family member was suffering from a progressive neurological disease might jump at the chance to help research in this. Now, in a situation like this, the decision should be up to the patient, right, to decide whether or not to participate in research. But if the committee says, no, 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 that's too risky, that's too burdensome, we don't want to put you through that, that takes power out of the hands of the subject, puts it in the hands of the committee. Now, we started this line of conversation by asking, how does this harm research? And the answer is, if this research is not done, all the scientists can do is tell us what they think they would have found and the lives it might have saved. But it's all a little bit hypothetical, so it's Although they're very frustrated, uh, it's hard for the scientists to speak up about it because they can't usually can't prove what they couldn't do. It's it's a it's a hidden problem for that reason in part among others. Well, in the beginning, when I read the info, I said that you present in your book case studies of how uh, this occurs, which we've just been talking about preventing vital breakthroughs. Uh, but let's talk about it. You know, people can relate to the heart disease, premature births, kidney stones. Can we talk about those specifically in the case in those case studies and, and how the research has been impeded and uh, we're not getting the kinds of treatment that we could get uh, if that hadn't happened oh, or the treatments delayed? Yes, absolutely. The, the heart attack is the most appalling example. In 1985, an international consortium consisting chiefly of British and U.S. cardiologists set out to test new heart attack treatment. Um, the U.S. required that patients having a heart attack um, read and sign a four-page, single-spaced, very complex informed consent form. Now, if I were having a heart attack and somebody wanted to do some research involving me, I'd want to know about the research. But I, I'm quite sure that in the center of that, in the in a situation of that much pain and fear, I'm not going to want to be reading a long form. I would say, where the heck do I sign this thing? As I think most of us do every day on the web. So a simple, rapid consent process gets people signed up rapidly and gets the results sooner. Because we had such a cumbersome consent pro consent process, the study was delayed by months. That may not seem like a lot of time, but in the U.S. at that time, uh, there were about 200,000 heart attacks per year. So every month, you have thousands and thousands of people having heart attacks, many of those dying. It turned out this treatment saved about 40% of those deaths. So over the course of the time the study was delayed, we would have seen about somewhere between three and 10,000 people would have lived who actually died. So when you delay the result of research, people don't get it, they die, and that's the price you pay even if the research is done eventually. 
I mean, that's that a stu- yeah. I mean, that's a stunning, obviously, a stunning example. And what do those people? Say? I mean, you just gave us the stats. What are the people who are? I, I keep going back to those people who are preventing us from doing the research. What What do they say? They have the. They obviously have the same statistics. They still defend themselves in terms of this oversight or this regulation. Well, in terms of this particular case, uh, Carl Schneider and I have published a paper pointing this out in some detail. And the ethicists who support this system really had no good answer. And so they did what, what experts do when they don't have a good answer. They simply didn't touch the question. Um, one ethicist said this, this probably didn't kill as many people as Schneider or Whitney say. But that's a, that's a, that's a pretty poor response for a system that was designed to improve ethics and save lives when it's doing just the opposite. Let's talk about premature births. How does it play out with premature births and that kind of research? Premature births are a great success story. Um, and, and some of the most important research was done here in this country, starting in Boston, where, where retinopathy of prematurity, which is the eye disease that blinds babies, was first discovered. It was discovered in Boston because the Boston hospitals were very good at giving their, their babies high levels of oxygen. This was in the 1940s. And that's how we discovered that although oxygen is vital for life, it can also cause problems. It's, it is a powerful chemical, and if newborns get too much of it, they go blind. So the dilemma for the doctor taking care of very premature babies, we're talking about little, little ones who are months early, the dilemma for those doctors is, how much oxygen is enough to sustain life, but not so much as to cause excessive cases of blindness? There was a major study in the U.S. to help answer that question in the early 2000s, and that study was completed. The results were in. It turned out that although... Now, we're talking about babies who are maybe perhaps 25, 26, 27 weeks gestation. To put that into ordinary terms... The baby might weigh as little as a pound and a half, could fit into a large soup bowl, could not live without months in intensive care, and even then is likely to have, is at high risk of having serious problems involving mental function, physical function, breathing, and other issues. These babies have a death rate of about 16%, even with the best care. These doctors are trying to nudge that death rate down a little bit, and to nudge the rate of not having blindness up a little bit. And this study worked. But what happened afterward, after the study was finished, was the feds came back and said, you didn't explain all the bad things that could happen as a result of participating in this research without ever mentioning that all these bad things happen to premature babies anyhow, whether they're in the research or not. The federal position was just unjustified, but it put it not only put the doctors through a terrible hard time, but the part that really upsets me, and I I, I, I find this difficult to believe, but the facts are there. Um, the doctors trotted out these trotted out families whose children had suffered and had perhaps had cerebral palsy or cognitive difficulties. Uh, the feds allowed these children to be trotted out 
as proof of the danger of the study. That was, that was simply not true. But these children and their parents were left with the impression that participating in the study had harmed them. That was not true, and that's a violation of trust with these parents who believed they were doing the best for their children. Am I? It's a complicated story. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I mean, it seems to me the federal government is getting involved in a lot of uh, doctor-patient relationships that they shouldn't be involved in, and uh, it's getting worse, not better. But anyway, yes, that makes a lot of sense. It does. And then uh, it's it's really kind of frightening. Uh, I also want to go on to the kidney stones because millions of Americans suffer from kidney stones. So what's happening in terms of that or how has the federal government prevented us from getting the care that we need? Our best view into kidney stones comes from Frederick Coe, who's been treating kidney stone patients at the University of Chicago since 1966, I think it is. Uh, Coe is not a young man, but he, he still shows up at clinic. And he still does research. And when the University of Chicago Kidney Stone people have their conferences, he leads them, even though he's well into his 80s. So Coe's seen the whole system. And when he first started doing kidney stone research, you know, when when patients come to the kidney stone clinic, the first thing they do is they have a urine sample. And at the end of the day, in the back of the clinic, there's a lab bench with with a dozen or so containers of leftover urine that the staff normally pours down the toilet. Uh, For some of Coe's research, he studies the proteins that protect us from getting kidney stones, other proteins that permit kidney stones to form. And for this, he just needs to have urine samples identified by this patient formed kidney stones or this patient did not, and male or female. There's no name attached to it, Uh, no way to attach it back to an actual person and no way to do anything useful with it except pour it, pour it down the toilet unless Coe can use it in his research. His IRB committee now requires him to get elaborate consent to possibly use people's urine in the lab in ways that and the consent process doesn't make much sense and he has to do things to apply for permission to conduct this research using urine that would be thrown down the toilet in elaborate ways. For instance, he has to uh, submit a bibliography of the scientific references relating to kidney stone, much of which he has already produced, and which has nothing to do with patients deciding whether or not it's okay for Co, their own doctor, to study the urine they leave behind. It, it seems trivial um, that he has to get permission to do this and has to submit a bibliography, but these are the kind of things that eat away at scientists' time and funding and effort, low research. And when research is slowed, that's one more patient who is not treated and instead ends up back in the ER begging for morphine, thinking they're going to die if they don't get pain relief in a big hurry. It, it's, it's a terrible problem. We should have better treatment, and this system makes those better treatments harder to find. What can we do as consumers to sort of get on the bandwagon, if we want to, uh, for what you're talking about and getting the federal government, um, as you're describing it, uh, uh, preventing them from getting in bed with us for our research? Uh, What do we do? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're not just consumers, namely we need the treatments. We're also 
supporters, uh, our taxes, uh, support this system. Our taxes support slowing research down. And uh, you, you probably noticed that some people think the government is polarized now. I'm not taking a position on that, but I will say that I think a legislator who got a proposal to improve people's health and to make health care better that involves simply doing a little less at the federal level and that would have clear benefits for all of us might get a good reception. Uh, it's time for the legislature, the U.S. legislature, to fix what it did wrong this many years ago and set up a system that considers both the benefits of research and the need to protect people from scientific harm. We could get such a law. It's not complicated. We used to have a better system. We go back to it as Congress will just <laughs> turn their attention to this small matter for part of an afternoon. Well, how to do that and how to get the word out, obviously your book is doing that. Are there any other groups uh, or individuals who are on the bandwagon for doing just what you described? Um, the bandwagon is very small, and it's because scientists think that this system is required by ethics, and they're afraid to speak up. And part of what I try to explain to them is that ethics does not require a bureaucracy. It requires thought. And this bureaucracy that we have is not ethics, and it's delaying research, and that's costing lives. So ethics would speak for changing the system to make it serve all of us better. Rather than ethical, it's un, it's, as you're describing it, and as you describe in your book, it sounds unethical. We're doing the unethical thing or that the government is doing the unethical, uh, not ethical. You're, <laughs> uh, you couldn't be more right. The government is standing between the kidney stone sufferer and a better treatment. As a result, more kidney stone sufferers go to the emergency room and some of the ones who never had a drug problem before end up with a drug problem afterward. It happens, and, and, and it, 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 we need to do more to prevent that. Yeah, you just, I mean, you say this has been going on for a long time, and maybe I asked you this in the beginning, but um, I'm assuming that your book is timely. I mean, why actually at this particular time did you decide to write it? Because it's getting worse and worse? Uh, or the system as it is now, the unethical system that we have in terms of research is getting worse. Um, and that's the motivation for now writing the book from oversight to overkill. I think the field is ripe for change. If you talk with any scientist doing research with human subjects today, they will say that this system slows their research down, makes the work harder makes it harder to recruit graduate students to join their labs. It makes it harder to get doctors to go into research instead of into clinical medicine. It, 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 it's, a, it's a very serious problem. Everybody recognizes it, but the talk of ethics frightens them from speaking up against it. I think if we can get the idea that ethics demands excessive oversight out of people's heads, People speak up and say, this system isn't working and should be changed. I don't know if this book will make that difference, but I do believe in Stein's law. Uh, Stein was an economist uh, during the Nixon administration, and his law says that if something cannot continue, it will end. 
well, I don't think this system can continue. At some point, it's going to end, and I would say, why not now? I, well, we only have a couple minutes left, so why not now? Let's get the, the word out, literally your words out, from oversight to overkill inside the broken system that blocks medical breakthroughs and how we can fix it. And the author of that book is Simon N. Whitney. Uh, he's a doctor and a lawyer, both degrees. Um, so, Dr. Whitney, where, what websites can we go to for more information about what we've been talking about and for more information about how we can access your book? Well, for information about the book, uh, you can get it at any online or local bookseller. You may need to order it from local one. Uh, online, you can get it at Rivertown's Books uh, with the promo code CURIOUS23. That'll get you 20% off. Uh, it's it's not a very expensive book. The e-version is, I think, $8 or thereabouts. And so I'm not going to get rich off it, but if people write their congressperson and say, let's change this system, then something can be done to make this better and to give us all the cures that we need. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. You presented a lot of really good information, and uh, we're going to follow your work. Uh, uh, We've been talking, or I've been talking to Simon Whitney, MD, JD. Thank you. We appreciate your being on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 